Hi, everyone, and welcome to a very special bonus episode of the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormoran Strike, as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kenz, and today, Lindsay, Pools, and I are joined by two very special guests as we discuss the epigraphs of the Strike novels. As always, please be aware that our discussion of the epigraphs will include spoilers for all of the books, including Troubled Blood. Our first guest might be familiar to you if you remember his excellent sleuthing for book six titles on Hogwarts Professor. Nick Jeffrey is an engineer living in the Vale of Glamorgan who has recently rediscovered his love of reading for pleasure, initially through the works of J.K. Rowling and Robert Galbraith, and later much else by way of literary illusion in Harry Potter and Harry Potter's bookshelf. Welcome, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You know, one thing you said, and I'll quote you, is that you have an annoying talent to find things <laughs> with, which you cheer, <laughs> with which you cheerfully help the Hogwarts Professor team. I just want to say we think it's amazing talent. We all enjoy it very much. Mm-hmm. Well, if any of you do have questions, it really is a joy. And I can't always find an answer. In fact, very often mm-hmm. I can't find an answer. But it is for me, it is the, the hunt is the enjoying thing. Detective at heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our next guest might also be familiar to you. We're thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Beatrice Groves, who teaches Shakespeare and Renaissance English literature at Oxford University. She's the author of Literary Illusion and Harry Potter and has a blog over at MuggleNet called The Fildus Notebook, at which she discusses aspects of all of Rowling's works. We'll be including a link to her blog in this episode's show notes if you'd like to read more. Thank you so much for being here with us today. It's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. We're very excited for both of you to be here. Like mm-hmm. Ken said, we're going to be talking about the epigraphs today and what they could mean for the ink black hearts. I really love the epigraphs and I started to really appreciate them, I think within the last couple of books, especially, but I'm excited to talk about them because I've seen a lot of comments online that range from not understanding to just completely disliking they even exist. So this is going to be great, I think. Yeah, for sure. To start out with, I wanted to ask Beatrice and Nick, why do you think it's important to pay attention to the epigraphs in Strike? So what do they add to the novels? How do they affect how we understand the text? So an epigraph, I think, is something, it's, it's something called a paratext, which is part of a text that is not the text itself. So everything, mm. like the title, the book, the name of the author, they're all paratexts. And it's a paratext you don't have to have. So unlike a title, etc., it's a choice. And therefore, I think it draws attention to the literariness of the work. So it draws attention to the book as a, as a book and as a book in conversation with the books the author has read themselves. So it it's immediately says to you that I, as the author, am a reader like yourself. So I think it forms a, a very nice continuity from that point of view of a sort of uh, it's a humble thing in some way because it says look here's a fantastic thing by somebody else but it's also rather proud it often shows off your own reading and Rowling has obviously she's gone for this in a, in a big way she started using epigraphs in Deathly Hallows those are her first epigraphs and they're incredibly high culture references for a children's book so Aeschylus and then a massively heroically obscure 17th century author as the religious one so when you know when I first read Deathly Hallows along with a lot of other people I thought what quoting Aeschylus in a children's book what's going on and obviously from then she's just decided to build up on that and everything she's written since then has had epigraphs and it's something she i I think she loves and she's, you know, she kept under wraps 
in Harry Potter because it's not generally suitable for children's writing in a big way anyway. Um, and now I'm sure she, I'm sure everything she writes from now on will have epigraphs and I love them um, because <laughs> I'm sure they will. And, you know, she did the sort of heroically boring topic in Casual Vacancy. So it was really interesting, you know, to choose something, you know, a, a work which is in itself incredibly dull and in fact, in doing so, that itself was even that might be considered a literary thing because Nabokov famously used some very, very dull texts as his, as his epigraph. So I wonder if she's doing a little a little reference to him there. But I was just over the moon when Silkworm came out because mm. those are all pretty much all early you know, Renaissance plays. And yeah. as someone who works on Renaissance plays, I just had this sort of, it's like, these are for me. I'm so pleased she's done this. Um, and that was such fun and then career of evil for me was a big sort of oh step back I'm not interested in, <laughs> in yeah. this particular I found out about them I have written a blog post about those epigraphs as well and she's still doing clever literary things with them but then with Lethal White she first did in Lethal White all the epigraphs from one text so 71 I think epigraphs from one text and as far as I'm aware, I'm always sort of saying this when I talk about them. If anyone knows any other book which has taken all its epigraphs from one text, I would love to hear about it because I don't think anyone else has done this. So I think that's, yeah, I think it's a genuine literary first, which is yeah. quite exciting and cool. It's very difficult, you know, to find an epigraph for every single chapter from the mm -hmm. same work. And now she's done it twice, obviously. And I think having done it, it's a you know like a puzzle for her that she's managed mm. to do it and I think she'll carry on doing it I think you know if she can yeah my question is it seems so difficult do you think I guess you don't know her process but I imagine that the text she's using as the epigraph she would have to have that in mind very early in the writing of especially lethal white and troubled blood because of the parallels yes so yes do you think that the text from the epigraph actually shapes the novel as it's taking form, as well as sort of being this? Yeah, that's really interesting. I do think that, and I agree with you. I don't think that prior to Lethal White, no. but I'm sure she, so it does, in Silkworm, those re revenge tragedies, they come up twice. So they're both, Robin's mother is studying them as part of her course, and that was studied by the murderer mm -hmm. when she was an undergraduate. So it has that, she obviously was thinking about them as part of the story, but then perhaps the actual silkworm aspect came later when she decided that they would make a really sort of good, give the sense of, of both the sort of arcane nature of the murder and everything in that. But I think also to give us a sense that it was about revenge, which it isn't really about revenge in quite the way, you know, so I think it was partly a sort of you know, sending us off in the wrong direction. But I completely agree with you that I think in both Lethal White and Troubled Blood, she would have had to decide very early on that this mm -hmm. is what she was going to do. And in Troubled Blood, I even think that the name is related. So oh, yeah. Mar Margot in Troubled Blood is based on Amaret. And Margot and Amaret are almost the same names with just one letter change. So again, I think she probably named Margot after she thought about Amaret. And she would have need, you know, so I think the the relationship between Rebecca and Rosma in the Ibsen in Lethal White and the relationship between Grit and Martin Article and Robin um, and Strike in both cases would be is a framing narrative for her mm -hmm. and I think she would have thought you know where where's this relationship going I'll I'll choose those texts so mm -hmm. 
Obson's play was originally called The White Horse in his when he was drafting it. Mm-hmm. So I think once she decided, probably she might have thought about The White Horse uh, in Oxfordshire, the Uffington White Horse first, and then she might have, having thought of that White Horse, thought, ooh, <laughs> I know another play about white horses and this could work really well. So I suspect that's where it started. Mm-hmm. Um, that was incidentally my my favourite and best ever prediction. So I predicted that the White Horse at Uffington would be <laughs> a, yeah. a murder spot. And so I went and took on the day it was produced. I went and took it there and read it there. And I was so happy. <laughs> I remember listening to you say that yeah. on another podcast. I remember listening to that and I remember thinking, that's so cool. I wish I could it was do so that. Because I was like, I was like, it was a pre-fan pilgrimage. And never no one's ever done a pre-fan pilgrimage before. <laughs> Because only rolling ever leaves hints such yeah. a thing that you might yeah. actually guess where where things are happening. So that was very, very satisfying. So I loved, obviously, how many white horses came into that novel. So then she had loads of other mm. white horses, obviously, that then yeah. entered it. But I love the idea that that's the shaping. And when mm. when does she decide? And so now I think if she is going to carry on doing it all to one text, I expect she will now know. Now she knows she's doing that. Mm-hmm. We'll start very early on in the process. And that sort of puts paid. Nick, when you discovered, you discovered two titles, The Ink Black Heart and The Last Cries of Men. Initially, when I read your post, I thought that maybe Last Cries of Men was an early alternate title for Troubled Blood because of the themes of loss, right? But now I'm thinking that maybe it couldn't have been because of you know how early on and how much it has to shape the story. I thought this because of the timing of the mm. trademark registration, I thought, oh, Last Cries of Men, that's kind of pretty good timing for Troubled Blood, right? I don't know, but this idea that they're really influential from the beginning sort of puts paid to my theory, I guess, that it was an alternate. So d- might we still get Last Cries of Men? Um, maybe it's a story idea that she had and is setting aside, like she had Silkworm and set it aside to do Cuckoo's Calling first. Maybe. It w- was certainly one of my favorite theories at the time, that we found in Black Heart that Final Cries of Men was an alternate or the original intention for Troubled Blood. I think, mm-hmm. as well as what B said, another thing against that is this trademark is still being maintained. So mm. the first filing is always the most important because that is your prior art. But until you actually use the trademark by producing something, it's still at risk. So on all the different areas of legislation around the world, all the different countries that post their trademarks, you have to, at some point, to prevent somebody else taking it, file. It's not absolutely necessary, but for things like books, if somebody, for example, in Jamaica published a book called Troubled Blood prior to a trademark filing in that location, then it gets very expensive to either come to a deal with the person that's already published or to have to release it as a different name within that territory. And all of this is very expensive. So slowly but surely, people do tend to maintain their trademarks. And uh, Final Cries of Men is still being maintained. Okay, so it could be, yeah. And I think, you know, so when Nick found that, he also found that so the Last Cries of Men was in line from a done text. So that seems to me too good to waste and I'm I'm very much hoping this is strike seven. <laughs> oh that would be so great. <laughs> I love John Don. It's a common fan theory and it's one I'm very very much in favor of looking at the parallels with that Harry Potter series that we are looking at a seven story cycle. 
Now, that mm -hmm. is not to say, and Rowling has explicitly said, yeah. it is not a seven book series. But I think we are going to see a story arc right. with yeah. a ring structure completed at seven. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. Yeah, exactly. What we're looking at is is an original seven that she did originally plan it as seven and she structured yeah. it as seven and now she's loving it and it's doing really well and she's going to carry on every time she gets a new idea. But it's there's a seven book structure here yeah. and, and mm -hmm. we're all hoping obviously it doesn't stop us. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we love that theory here. I yes. think we based most of our predictions in our prediction episode on the ring structure and on parallels with Harry Potter. So mm -hmm. we're big fans of that. Yeah. And it really, you know, it has worked predictively. So yeah, what the professor has, you know, thought, oh, book four would happen in the London Sporting Olympics. Event, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then it didn't look like it was going to work because it was going to be a year too early. And then there was that year leap at the beginning yeah. getting us into the Olympics. So that yeah. was Louise who came up with that one. Yeah, I remember that. It was really exciting. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and that worked very well as well. So I can't remember who it was or what's professor, but one person was reading it with Goblet of Fire in mind and just said, well, obviously this is a patricide of the minister um, by his son. And sure enough, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. So he knew who the murderer was going to be and I hadn't quite clocked myself mm. I didn't I didn't spot that but I thought in the moment it works predictively then what knows one's got a theory. Goblet of Fire and Lethal White are always the ones that I point to when people argue against the parallel theory I'm like but mm. look at this. Look at this and I think we're going to see it with two so to me the book within the book in two yes. is really close so that's one of the mm. best because the diary is so important and then rolling does the chiastic, you know, this uh, the link um, with six? So the the book within the book. So the obviously the half blood potions textbook mm -hmm. in six. So I'm really hoping and expecting a book within a book in this one as well, just as we had it. In yeah, I agree. Well. My idea was that it might be the book that Al mentioned that Rokeby was writing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What do you? Yeah, think? I, I love I love that theory. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So a book that we've had just trial to us slightly little mm -hmm. moment before yeah it would be a great way to get some backstory too yeah, yeah yeah I wonder about something also perhaps to do with children so she's told us that this we're going to go much younger with this mm -hmm. story so mm -hmm. that's one of the only sort of things we definitely know about it and I wondered if that might follow in sort of other thematic ways so going back to strikes childhood obviously is one way but another way would be some book from you know childhood's diary something like that yeah Actually, Pools, do you want to jump in with your theory for epigraphs? Oh, do we want to do that now? I'm, we were going to save that till the end. But... It seems like a good time. <laughs> yeah, with the children, I actually have been thinking, and I laid this all out in the predictions episode, so I can do a shorter version here so that I, I don't bore our listeners. But I've been thinking, hoping, I love the Shakespearean theory that we can talk about later, but I kind of love the idea that the epigraphs could be taken from classic children's literature that mm -hmm. she might go back to a variety of sources. So just like in Silkworm, we had several different revenge tragedies. We could go back to the great children's literature. She herself, Rowling, has written or published two children's books since Troubled Blood. So I feel mm -hmm. like it might be on her mind. Mm -hmm. The demographic of the book you mentioned, it's possible that if it's young people, children, that children's lit would fit because children's lit can get very dark and gory, right? So yeah. I love that sort of oh the innocence of childhood no we've got a horrible murder <laughs> kidnap plot and we've got some very dark stuff and it was the title the ink black heart it felt very mm. fairy tale to me it put yeah. me in mind of the warlock's hairy heart yes yeah. from beetle the bard um which the heart grows 
black hair and he's licking it. So I'm also hoping for actual cannibalism <laughs> in the next novel. That's another theory. We're going to get that's a cannibal. The dark a real cannibal. hasn't gone yet. Yes, that's right. We, yeah. we need to go there. There's what's left. We do. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be because in Silkworm, we had a fake out. It's not actually cannibalism. It's a fake out. But what if we get a real, you know? Well, I think that's very plausible. I think that would really work. You know, obviously she loves children's stories. She's always talked about Nesbitt, for example. There's a lot of, in Elizabeth Googe, a lot of children's writers who she feels hasn't, haven't got the, you know, quite the fame they deserve. And she's done a lot, you know, Little White Horse was reprinted because she said it was her favourite children's book. Um, I've written about her and the influence of Nesbitt, who is obviously although very famous for certain books, her wider books are not still read very much. So I think that'd be very plausible in terms of books that she loves and books she wants to sell to us as readers. Um, and I think I completely agree with you that as a silkworm parallel, sort of this greatest hits approach to the epigraphs is quite likely. So it's just a question of whether she's got, she's started to really enjoy this incredibly complex thing of writing them all to one mm-hmm. uh, enough that maybe she wants to keep on or whether she wants to go more with the paralleling and keep that yeah. too so yeah we'll see which way it goes but I, I totally go with that and I I also similarly had in fact been thinking about the warlock's hairy heart even before we knew it was in black heart because of the last cries of men so my last cries of men one I think there's a number of links there with the done so I found a done link with the poor looks hairy heart so I was already thinking about that so when it came the heart one I thought oh okay Okay. (laughs) interesting but you're right she's she's gone back to it with Ichabog and Christmas pig so both of which I loved both of which I loved as well I loved yeah, absolutely loved it. I loved Ichabok during the lockdown. It was mm. absolutely wonderful. And I had, you know, that thing of having something new every evening to read when you think the rest of life is so samey right now. Um, that was wonderful. And a, a real sort of return to a Harry Potter feel of everybody waiting for release each time and reading it all together. And that was, I thought, a, a brilliant thing she did. No, I agree. Um, Nick, Going back to the epigraphs, I know that you're an engineer and you're just, you know, getting back into reading. From that perspective, how do you sort of feel about the epigraphs? What's your journey been with them? I'm curious. So I think in the early strike books, I found them as a bit of an impediment. So I'm still practicing sort of inhabiting the story. And to do that, I have to really slow myself down. Mm -hmm. And then you reach the end of a chapter and it's an exciting story and you've got your own theories and you know where you want to go. And then there's this sort of yeah. alien text that I have yeah. to get past before I can get back into it. I think from Lethal White on, I started enjoying them much, much more. Now, I, I haven't yet gone back to reread them. Mm-hmm. I have a to-be-read pile that is taller than I am. Yeah, same. <laughs> but but from, from Lethal White on, I would read the epigraph and probably not understand very much of what it was trying to tell me mm-hmm. inhabit the chapter as best i could and then come back and reread the epigraph again and usually that would give me some indication of what the author was trying to tell me in that chapter giving me another mm-hmm. sort of another look into it so i, I think now i'm a fan but, yeah. but it took me a while to get there. Yeah. Well, there you are. See, she's got you into epigraphs as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I felt the exact same way. And it wasn't until probably Lethal White that I was like, hmm, 
These are really interesting, but it did take a couple of rereads. The more I reread them and the more that I read articles on them, like by UB, I, I can appreciate them so much more. I feel like it's made me a bigger fan. So mm. I love them now. That's lovely to hear. And I think that's also that they're encouraging rereading, which is yes. something that we know she's been doing, you know, since Harry Potter, the whole, one of the whole things with Harry Potter is that when you come back to it, you each time you think, oh, there's a little clue that I didn't realize there's a little clever idea. And they're like that to encourage rereading is one of the things that Rowling's writing does that is the most important thing, I think. Yeah. And I, I love the way there's little clues hidden there. So they're quite mm -hmm. difficult to find. But I think so one of my favorite ones is chapter 34, where the epigraph is, oh, Lord, what have I said? My unlucky tongue. <sighs> Yeah. And that's the one where she makes the slip and says, oh, I was in that crash. And, like, what, what, yeah. what, what were you doing there? and that's as a reader, you see Unlucky Tongue, you see it, her slip. But there's actually Fancourt's made a slip in that chapter, too, and said F when you meant to say Ellie. And I didn't spot that. But when you reread it, you think, oh, yes, there's a double mm -hmm. plot to the a lot of the epigraphs. The best ones are relating to the strike and Robin plot and to the murder mystery at the same yeah. time. Yeah. And, Which yeah. is amazing. So, so clever. Yeah. So clever. <laughs> so, yeah. And I bet she has a lot of fun with that, you know, making that work. Mm -hmm. Another one I really liked at the very end of Lethal White, the epigraph epilogue your past is dead Rebecca it has no longer any hold on you and that is both Robin setting off finally sort of throwing off her marriage and that sort of sense that she can move forward from it and Billy as well so this is where Billy discovers that no one did die mm -hmm. at the white horse and that sort of frees him and I think that's you know very lovely as a connection yeah mm -hmm. now can I ask you because we talked about how lethal white and trouble blood are both the only one so far from a single text. How important do you think it is to understand the text that the epigraphs are coming from? Yeah, so I think you don't need to. Mm -hmm. So I had not read Rosmachon before reading Lethal White. But if you do read it, then you just get an awful lot more out of it yeah fairy queen obviously was this was the one that i just couldn't believe it would be right you know the nick said trouble blood could be from fairy queen i thought like, no it's not gonna be fairy <laughs> queen. that would just be too good i would love that too much it can't be so that's why now i think when we have this idea maybe it's shakespeare's sonnets and i think well last time i thought that would be too good and too wonderful it turned out to be true so maybe it is shakespeare's sonnets yeah. After all. <laughs> <I hope> so. <laughs> but yeah it would be wonderful but yeah the fairy queen obviously is a big ask of readers to go away and then read the fairy. And I'm, I'm sure yeah. some people have done it, but not huge numbers. And I think about the fairy queen, it's less important to know because it's kind of clear what's going on to an extent that you've got a fairy tale idea of good and evil, a heroic Britomart fighting for right. I think that sort of you can get that sense. I think they bring a sense there, even without knowing the text at all. Mm -hmm. And I think also you can do a little bit of work of just go and read that bit of the poem. Mm -hmm. You know, so now we have searchable texts online. The Fairy Queen yeah. is actually one of the most difficult texts still to find because it's so huge that yeah. it's quite difficult to track down. But it is there on the internet. If you, if you do a bit of searching, you can find the whole thing and then go and just read just read the stanza yeah. um, that it's from. And that's something. It's yeah. on archive.org, I believe, the full text. Normally you just get book one. Book one always jumps up and you're like, no, I yeah, don't book one. <laughs> I, I want all of them. <laughs> yeah. I actually read a retelling that I bought on Apple Books for a dollar, I think it was. That's excellent. And that was really great. It, you know, it was much shorter and 
and easier for me to read as a total amateur here, but I did really enjoy it. And I loved seeing, especially like how the relationship between article and Britomar is and, and what that means in the text. Actually, one of my favorite things that you wrote, and of course, being a proud shipper <laughs> in one of your blogs is you said, one of the main functions of the fairy queen epigraphs in Troubled Blood, therefore, is to promise us that Robin and Strike will finally get together. Can you talk a little bit about that and explain yeah. why we so, can be confident? Why we can be confident they will. Certainly, yeah. I feel as an epigraph reader, there's no question that they will end up together. They obviously will. She wouldn't have chosen texts of so both with Rosma Shulman as well. So Rebecca and Rosma fall in love. It doesn't. That one doesn't end very well, admittedly. Um, <laughs> but Bruce Martin article. So in the Fairy Queen, we, we're missing. Uh, half of it so even though it's the longest poem in English basically there are one medieval text longer but it's still only half finished and so Britain Martin article they get engaged at the end of book four but then article has to go off on the rest of his quest so they're not together but um, Merlin shows Britain Martin the future and tells her she's going to have children with article and they will then you know produce a great line of monarchs who will end up with Queen Elizabeth so we're certain they end up together, even if we don't quite see it. So I think that works quite nicely again with the sort of, we haven't got there yet, um, yeah. but we will get there. They will be together. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. Their names go together. <laughs> Their names go together as well. So uh, Spencer does this with a few people. So Scudamore and Amaret, um, you can see in the way their names segue and you get one name out of them. And it's the same with Britomart and Artigal. They, they belong together. Um, but as a sign of Britomart sort of being this sort of powerful woman as she comes first, whereas all the other pairs, the man comes first and then the woman. So it's quite nice. I'm curious for both of you, which epigraphs of the five strike novels so far have been your favorite? and why? So for me it's Fairy Queen uh, every time just because I already loved the Fairy Queen. I teach the Fairy Queen and so I was just so excited too that she had chosen this. I also have always thought the Fairy Queen is influential on Harry Potter and this is the first proof that we have that she's read it. Um, so the amount of, with the epigraphs of the other books before Lethal White, she doesn't have to have read the books, you know, I'm sure she has, but you just have one line. It could just be she's found a good line. So these ones where the whole text is in conversation with the whole other text we, is the proof that she's really read it and connected. One of the first things Rowling ever wrote in 98, her old university asked her to produce something for the university magazine. And she was called, what is the name of that nymph again? And she starts that with a quote from Nietzsche and it sounds terribly terribly grand and then she underneath she says it you know a good epigraph gets the ball rolling but I I haven't actually read any Nietzsche I've just read um <laughs> Donna Tart's Secret History which also has starts with this epigraph so I've just nicked it from there so it's a wonderfully self-deprecating thing to do but it does remind us that you know actually I've read the whole text to to yeah. quote from the epigraph so I love the fact that with Fairy Queen no, we know that she has read read it all otherwise she couldn't she couldn't use the epigraphs in the way she does so as proof that she's read the fairy queen and that i wasn't making it up when i thought that the certain things in harry potter were based on the fairy queen uh, that was just uh, delightful for me and also it's so complex so these ones where she does do the whole text from uh, the whole text from another epigraph it just it just makes all those epigraphs wind in so much more fully so i was I did realise from the Fairy Queen, so the, the most famous baddie in the Fairy Queen is called Duessa. She is a double-faced woman um, who pretends to be the heroine. And 
I knew I was looking for duets there, yeah. but I didn't, I didn't actually clock. So obviously that meant I was going to have both a female murderer and also that she was going to turn up as a good guy pretending somewhere else. Yeah. I was just going to ask you about that. If you, if you thought I it was a completely, woman. I went down the other way. I, so I was, I was totally sold. you know, she obviously did all the thing that made you think it was going to be a male murderer mm-hmm. and that it was going to be sex based and all this sort of terrible stuff. And I, so I completely fell for that. Um, <laughs> but there is a bad guy in, in book one called Archimago, who's the, the magician who makes Duessa and so I was looking for Archimago not for Duessa but I should have realized that it was Duessa and then when we discovered that she's also the social worker this is very clever double yeah so that was the double Duessa it worked very well as did the Janice so this again was pointed out at Hogwarts professor by Elizabeth Baird Hardy who's another very green fan that Janice and Janus sound based on Janus the two-faced god we should have again there's a little hint there and she used that again in Harry Potter so Quirinus Quirrell yeah that's right so Janus is Janus Quirinus so again a brilliantly obviously the most literally two-faced person ever Um, (laughs) and another little yeah so that another little Harry Potter Lincoln which I always love to see oh so good what about you Nick what's your favorite so I'll agree with B uh, for two main reasons I think I'm getting more practiced at getting into the epigraph to understand a little bit more of the author's intent. And I was just so pleased that was initially a shot in the dark. So when when the the name Trouble Blood was announced, it sounded an odd construction to me and it sounded quite literary. So I was keen to try and find out if that phrase had been used in the literature. Mm -hmm. And I found two likely suspects. I had heard, of course, never read, but heard of Fairy Queen before. So that was sort of my first. And it was a, another early, I can't quite remember what the other one was, mm-hmm. but it, it was it was another early uh, play. And be rightly said, she didn't really think it was going to be that because that would just be too good. And, and a few months later, she posted the Twitter header, which I did my image search on, as I always do. And yeah. it came up with this beautiful illustrated edition of mm-hmm. Fairy Queen. I was working in Japan at the time, and I <laughs> shouted in the middle of uh, a Japanese factory. Uh, everyone, everyone looked very Sounds odd. I sent, right. sent an email, sent an email to John Granger and Beatrice. I'm sure was completely unintelligible. <laughs> sort of uh whooping with joy but yeah absolutely delighted yeah I was going to ask you how does it feel when something you find is right like with the ink black heart title or or that uh, uh amazing a lot of them really are shots in the dark ink black heart I was you know I, I could see it's an important title for her but you know with Christmas pig if I had found <laughs> that five years ago of course yeah you know yeah. okay well that's that's nothing <laughs> yeah, to do with yeah. her in Blackheart, I was fairly sure it was a rolling mm-hmm. property, but I did again the literature search looking for this phrase, and I couldn't. I could find no possible hits. And it's lovely doing it nice and early because, of course, before they announce the title, everything you find is is nothing to do with this new book. Yeah. So that's what's great about yeah. Nick having found this so long ago. Now you yeah. can't search in yeah. that because you just get a strike. Yeah. <laughs> but he searched it before it was a strike title. Mm-hmm. So he knows that it's not there. So, yes, that is disappointing compared to Troubled Blood. And this song called Kurt Schreyer, who is yeah. another Shakespearean, contacted me on Twitter and said, oh, what about this sonnet 65 that in black ink my love might still shine bright? And it's not very close, but it is the closest thing we've got. 
so then it was like okay well let's see and the sonnets obviously would make brilliant epigraphs so i that's my and my really my main reason for hoping it's true is just that it would, it would be so good yeah and that there isn't anything else there was so many of her titles are literary so um lethal white's the only one that's not taken from the epigraphs let's say that the epigraphs do turn out to be these shakespearean sonnets um which i agree would be fantastic i'd love to read them as epigraphs what kind of predictions do you think we could make about the themes and the structure of the novel if we take into account the sonnets yeah so i think first of all love triangle that's the most famous thing about the sonnets is that Mm -hmm. we've got the dark lady in them so that obviously makes every strike I think Charlotte so is Charlotte coming back um I had rather hoped that that changing the phone number at the end of Charles that that is the end of Charlotte but we shall see um so if if he's he's dark lady it's worth there some people have suggested you know the new Green Street character might be a sort of a love triangle as I wrote so I have written a a blog about this with Kurt for Hogwarts professor and I think as we know, Rowling's favourite author is Austin. I think if Green Street is going to be relevant in that way, that she's going to be like Frank Churchill in Emma, that she's going to be someone who arrives and makes the main characters realise they're in love with each other by the fact they're jealous of this new person, <laughs> rather than any sort of, you know, it would be very naff, I think, if Strike starts having a relationship with her. That would be yeah. disappointing. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. But just, uh, you know, obviously there's no consummated aspect that Beaker in the sonnets is incredibly jealous um, of these people without it being, well, completely clear. He does sort of, it's clear that he thinks they're having sex, but it's not, not at all clear. Mm-hmm. It's not clear. Uh, the, <laughs> the sonnets are incredibly complex linguistically in terms of double meanings. You really need to read each sentence again to work out what on earth was going on. So in that sense, uh, a very complex plot, a very sort of clever signs, clues, pointing both ways in the words itself so if she is using this word that in black ink my love shall still shine bright ostensibly the speaker is saying there that my love the beloved will shine bright he will be memorialized forever in his beauty in my words but what he's sort of actually saying is that in these in these poems my love the fact that I'm great and I'm in love with you and you're horrible to me (laughs) will always be remembered so my love will still shine bright it has that double meaning even in just that line itself a very complicated thing which I don't suspect will be quite fair but it's just why not mention it is that Shakespeare changes the form of the sonnet so before Shakespeare we have Petrarchan sonnet which yeah. yeah exactly which they have we call it sort of uh, eight six octave sestet and there's there's a turn in the middle and it's called a volta when it's in a sonnet um, and that's obviously always happens in in murder mystery stories as well you get your your turn and you suddenly realize what's what's going on with Shakespeare he moves it to an extent so his sonnets are four 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 two which means you can still have eight six you can still divide it that way but you can also divide it twelve two which was never done before so he can have a sort of whole sonnet which just says you know let's say you're you're horrible to me you're horrible to me you're horrible to me and then the the couple just says, but I love you forever anyway, you know, <laughs> and you have that sudden, the shift happens much later. So obviously, if I were to sort of hope for a really complex in- interaction with the sonnets, it would be for that kind of uh, perhaps a second turn near the end after a medial turn 
in the yeah in the Volta coming twice. <laughs> that is such a fascinating idea. I mean, you're giving me flashbacks to my undergrad lit courses, which, which isn't super pleasant at the moment. You're bringing back some stuff, but uh, I love that idea that maybe in this book she will play with the structure of the mystery novel itself because she's been pretty faithful to the conventions, the rules of the genre, right? Mm. It would be neat if she switched it up in some way and played with it in the same way that Shakespeare invented sort of the new form of the sonnet. Oh, I'm going to go back and reread my <laughs> all of my old <laughs> well, notes about sonnets. The, certainly the plus of this, obviously, is that everyone can read Shakespeare sonnets um, mm. with rather more speed than Fairy Queen. So this is definitely, <laughs> I think, I think more people will bother to go and read the sonnets if this is the case than did with the Fairy Queen. So yeah. That, to the good. So we've talked a lot about the Fairy Queen and Lethal White and the possible future, but I wanted to go sort of back to the beginning because at the moment we're reading our way through Cuckoo's Calling on the podcast and we've all really been yes. missing the epigraphs and I was surprised at how much I was missing the epigraphs of yeah, course. Right. <laughs> yeah. So looking at Cuckoo's Calling, her choice of the epigraphs in front of each part, the Roman poets don't seem to have that same connection to the text itself in the way that the later ones do, right? That was my feeling too. Now, obviously, this is partly one's own knowledge. I don't know these poets in the way that I know all her later poets. So that's partly it. I do think she's beginning in the same way. So the Deathly Hallows ones don't fit quite as well. You know, they, they open up big ideas about the future. So the Aeschylus one opens up the idea that the children sort of rework the sins of the fathers and we see that echoing of the marauder's life going on in in harry's life but it's not it doesn't you know absolutely map closely in the same way mm-hmm. i do think the the title poem so the rossetti that i think does work in a really complex oh, yeah. and interesting way mm-hmm. and obviously you're forced into reading it because you hear the title, you think, I don't even know what this means grammatically. What does Cuckoo's Calling mean? I don't know what's going on. I'm amazed she was able to publish that undercover without yeah. someone saying, you're going to have to change this title. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's wonderful to read that and think, oh, great. OK, now I get it. And again, I've, I've written a blog about that. I think it fits in lots of really interesting ways, mm-hmm. not just the, the hint about the cuckoo who might have killed who, pushing them out of the nest, and also the spring. So come up, Cuckoo's Calling, this idea of a, you know, a very young death and a life cut short. Those are both present, but I think lots of other things are going on there. So that one, I think, is brilliant and really works. I feel slightly with the classical ones that she's just, she wants that Catullus strike link. She wants mm-hmm. that for him, either partly in this, the sort of, I read a review which said it's a thrilling, corny moment, but thrilling anyway, when he does the put down of fan court by quoting Catullus <laughs> at him. And you're like, it's all kind of setting up that moment that she thinks I want him to really know his stuff about Catullus. Mm-hmm. I do think a lot of, the, I think the Catullus is really important for her. There was a wonderful tweet where she did yeah. the OD ammo one. And you think, yes, this really comes in and can tell us is perfect for Twitter (laughs) you know in tiny bits of really bitter stuff so (laughs) I think that part of it is just setting up that for him that it's almost like linking into her hero rather than linking into the the story so closely one thing that I I really liked that you wrote was how the novel bookends with one that's 
not well known and then one that's rather famous which is mm. a nod to strike himself mm. Mm -hmm. and that's right so that the quote from the Tennyson poem about Odysseus setting off at the end is not an epigraph yeah. it's almost like it's much more important than any of the actual epigraphs other than the Rossetti poem and so I did feel that those two worked beautifully together but as I say, maybe someone who's a classicist could do more with the, yeah. with the other Roman ones. I had the same sort of idea that these epigraphs are speaking to the introduction of, of Strike as a character, you know, rather than the text itself. I'm just wondering, like, apart from the nod to him speaking Latin, which I'm intensely curious about because he says in the book, no, I didn't study it at university. Well, what does that mean? What did you study? Where did you learn Latin? Give us some answers. But the use of Latin seems like it's pointing to this Latin is a big thing in his character that we don't quite have the full backstory yet, right? I was yeah. just like, is there some characteristic of Roman poetry, Roman poets, other than the Latin that speaks to who Strike is, you know? And that's a question, Nick, that maybe you can use your skills to sort of research for us. What is this Latin? What can you study that has Latin but isn't studying Latin, you know? That's interesting also for Rowling's own studies. So people mm -hmm. often say that she studied classics and she didn't study classics. She makes it clear in what was the name of that nymph again that she studies sort of a, a subsidiary course where you study classical literature in translation. So I, I always like that because it means that sort of her classical interests are available to everyone. We don't have to be able to speak Latin or Greek to read this, you know, she read them in translation too. Yeah. But maybe the strike is relating to that in some way. This is something she kind of would have quite liked to have studied. Mm -hmm. And so she's made it for him. But yeah, it seems to be, it seems all we've had really, isn't it, is the Charlotte connection that she gave him the catalysis. And yeah. that's do we know? I, I just assumed she was taking classics. Do we know that? Or? We know she studied Catullus, but we also have a hint that his book of Catullus predates his relationship with Charlotte. Yes. I believe in Cuckoo's Calling, he says his favorite book was in a box. It was a certain numbers of years old. And the mm -hmm. timeline puts it to when he was a teenager before he went to Oxford. So if that book is Catullus, which we learn it is, yeah, that is it simply an yeah. old edition? Or did he have it before he went to Oxford and met Charlotte, who was studying it? Did Charlotte okay. choose to study Catullus because it was his favorite? You know? <laughs> I've always thought that with potions, I don't know if anyone else has noticed that, that, you know, when, when we learn in the Half-Blood Prince that Lily's so good at potions, like, did Snape get good at potions? Oh. Because Lily was so good at potions, oh, not the other yeah. way around. Yeah. So, like, so yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I obviously, I don't believe that Rowling's timeline is no. always going to be accurate that seems yeah. fair and I you know totally that's uh, not a criticism there's far too much going on for it always to be accurate but if yeah. that's true I, I had assumed that Charlotte gave him that book if it's true that it's from before then that's really interesting and something that might then that might be one of the things about Strikes Past that we're going to find out about is who who gave him the love for Catullus who's that who's that person there are some huge, huge questions about Strike's time at university and also his time in the military. So he seems to have fit a lot of things into <laughs> his timeline. Yeah. But we also know that Rowling is very good friends with people that have had that career, that have done, okay, maybe right. not those things, but have been to the same places and also is friends with people that have studied at Oxford. I would be surprised if she doesn't have 
a fairly accurate timeline of where strike has been mm -hmm. and what strike and i'm sure just as we find out about why robin's dropped out of university that that's going to be important mm -hmm. as to why strike did this yeah. is something they share um and we haven't found out why strike did yet i believe so i'm sure that's a reveal that she's intending to give us yeah i love the idea that she has an accurate timeline i think translating it to the books something's going so occasionally wrong but i do agree she has the knowledge of strike's backstory and it's I feel like it's going to be important. I think she said recently she has a file on her computer just yeah. full of it. And I'm like, I would like to see that. Please. <laughs> oh, I would give a lot. Yeah. I would give a lot. But, you know, I'm as someone who's bad with numbers, I sympathize with a lot of the errors that people knock her for. <laughs> I'm terrible with numbers and dates as well. So I, I get it. We were talking about Charlotte and I had a thought, B, you mentioned that the epigraphs in Silkworm, the revenge tragedy, you didn't think mm -hmm. it quite fit. Well, it was a bit of a misdirect. I was wondering, and I know you, you know these revenge tragedies. My theory was that Charlotte in this novel appears to be the protagonist in her own revenge tragedy, right? Mm -hmm. So she has this slight strike has left her and she's getting revenge through self-immolation as as strike watches on basically and she's trying to wound him um do you do you think that there's something in this as someone who knows these plots is that you may say is there a character like that like is charlotte a revenge yeah. tragedy protagonist in the silkworm um, there is a character called phaedra mm -hmm. who's a classic both uh both from the classics and then there's a very famous french version who she falls in love with her son-in-law and when he says no <laughs> that's not gonna happen she then tells her husband that he's raped her and her husband yeah. has him killed so that would be i think the sort of closest charlotte type person of a a woman who has been pushed off and then gets her revenge in a very extreme version i don't think we're seeing it well i think we're going to see any of that i don't think that's going to happen and she does no. commit suicide as well which i suppose is quite charlottean yeah, um, but, uh, so yeah, I hadn't thought about that before, but she is, Phaedra would be the, would be the Charlotte character mm. if you wanted to find one from the past, I think. Just wondering if Charlotte's revenge has, has spent itself out yet, her, her lust yeah. for revenge that we, you know. I think we'll be seeing her again. Yeah, <laughs> you're on the, we were seeing her again. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. All right. <laughs> I'm on the, I hope not. <laughs> the hope not train. I'm, I'm with you, Nick. I think she is going to pop back up. I don't think that her revenge is fully realized yet. I think she's going to be trying again, but that's, mm -hmm. that was sort of where I was thinking with Silkworm and revenge. Um, maybe the real mm -hmm. revenge is the one that Charlotte's trying to get. And I know that it doesn't end well, usually for the protagonists of these revenge tragedies. No, it's not a good idea to be the protagonist. Of this yeah. <laughs> I feel like the revenge, it's not, it's not that it didn't fit. It's just that it was the murderers. First. Mm -hmm. So the murderer was suggesting that mm -hmm. he was getting his revenge on every, you know, that Quine was getting his revenge on everyone else by writing this hit book about them all and then it only you know very very gradually became clear that it he hadn't written no this horrible book of course tassel did yeah. i think that yeah. strike did, said yeah yeah, yeah, yeah strike yeah. said did it feel good to get revenge on everyone exactly you? murdering and raising yeah. all your all the people you know yes so she yeah. does get but it's not the reason for the murder so i think you're just sort of mm -hmm. expecting it's the reason for the murder. and obviously you know, she's killing off someone who's blackmailing her but it's just not the passion is all mm -hmm. about to be protected. Her passion is just not for someone she murders. It's for someone who she wants not to find out that she might have encouraged yeah. his wife to commit suicide. 
Yeah, absolutely. Let's see. So we've done Cuckoo's Calling. We've done Silkworm, Career of Evil, the music. <laughs> we did touch on Career of Evil. Do you think that we'll get musical epigraphs again in the series? Because well, Career yeah. of Evil, it drew this connection between Strike's history and music, mm-hmm. I think, through his mother. And we know that Johnny Ropey is a prime suspect for musical epigraphs. So are we going to get them again, maybe in a book that deals with Leda's murder? Yeah, I, I think not, because I think no. she, if she was going to do it, she'd have done it in five. So yeah, I was I expecting them well. in five mm-hmm. and was then, you know, unbelievably delighted. <laughs> yeah. So that's my feeling is that she's done that. There's no particular reason to do it again. Um, mm. And if she had, she would, she would have done it. Yeah. That makes I'm completely sense. happy with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. The music ones are easier to read, I guess. For, they're a more accessible. Like them. Yeah. A lot of people yeah. like them. Yeah. And but, there was stuff going on in them. So, for example, the tattoo, I did think the clue that the murderer would have a tattoo was present in the epigraphs. Mm. And again, a misdirection that you sort of thought that meant the murderer must be connected to his someone who loves blue oyster cults or someone connected to Leda, someone, you know, and then it turns out the murderer just because he's obsessed with strike gets into blue oyster cult and starts singing yeah, the songs yeah. um, to himself. But it's also very unusual, you know, the murderer does quote them yeah. in the text. Yeah. So we get that in Rosmachon strikes this, isn't there a sort of play by Ibsen about yeah. this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's as close as it gets. And then in Troubled Blood, Una, the friend of Margot says, oh, I was known as Bunny Una because they couldn't pronounce my name. And Una's the character mm-hmm. in The Fairy Queen. So that's again, I think as close as we got there. Yeah. So I suppose the music does enable it to come into the text more simply. Um, yeah. My favorite from Career of Evil was the final one, um, a red cap, a red cap before the kiss. Because, mm. I mean, we're hoping that Strike himself, the red cap, gets there. But the red cap is slang for barbiturates, the depressant hypnotic drugs. So in a way, it's sort of speaking to Robin's mental state, too, as, she, as she's mm. walking up the aisle at this point. She's not herself. She's yeah. she's in this sort of depressed state. So it, I liked she still has some yeah. of a bit of double meaning. Yeah. She's exactly. still playing exactly. with it there. The clever things are still going on with it. Yes, mm. absolutely. Um, mm. She's still playing with it. But it, you just, I mean, I always say as, as a tutor, it's easier to write well about texts that are more complex. So it's you know, I chose Shakespeare as my doctoral subject because it was really easy to write about Shakespeare <laughs> because everything is going on. If a text is yeah. really complex, you can do complex things with it much more easily. And that's the case with mm-hmm. the text she's choosing as well. So I love it when she's choosing really literary texts because there's yeah. just a lot more going on. Yeah. yeah. So with the revenge tragedy ones, you know, I was there thinking, well, when's Hamlet turning up? You know, go, <laughs> yeah. surely Hamlet. So I've, I felt that Hamlet was kind of a sort of, smoking gun behind it because it's the most famous play within a play and this is the novel she says you know she calls yeah. it a novel with about a novel with a novel inside mm-hmm. it's a novel within a novel so I felt that Hamlet was kind of sort of absent presence in Silkworm but you know in, in Hamlet Hamlet takes the murder of Gonzago which is the play within the play Hamlet takes and rewrites it before it's performed so it's more like the murder than the original story was and I'm like that's exactly what happens in Silkworm maybe she was just saving Shakespeare for well that's also true yes right let's let's see that say yeah I like it yeah (laughs) I'm so talking about the fear I just wanted to see if we could sort of guess wildly at some authors that Rowling might use in the future because we know some of her favorites I have my fingers crossed for Austin because my lit lit Mm -hmm. background is 19th century British and 
I'm a big Austin fan myself. Austin so like, one. Oh, yeah, that would be maybe in the book where they get joy. married. That yeah, would be pretty they? fitting, I think. <laughs> but do you have any ideas that you'd like to see in the so future? With the Nick Last Rise of Men, so I'm thinking Dumb for Seven. That's a, a, I would I also love John Dumb. That would be great. But yeah, I love the idea of Austin. And yeah. that's certainly true. Uh, these are, you know, these are novels she knows backwards. She, she's read them all 10 times. So that's much easier to use if you know it really well, because lines will just jump out at you. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We've been collecting on Hogwarts Professor titles and authors that she's said she mm -hmm. likes. And I did some work a while back on video and photographs she's taken of her mm. bookshelves. And her interests are just <laughs> vast. <laughs> I mean, they are huge. It's difficult to think yeah. of a genre or an author or a type of work that you can exclude. Mm -hmm. I suppose she might have. So we know that she does like a lot of um, classic crime. Yeah. Um, and that well, might be a very natural, that'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? I would love that. That'd be meta. That would be good. Yeah. <laughs> There's a bit of fun meta. That might well. That would be yeah. good. Nabokov might be an option as well, mightn't he? Yeah. It's, he's certainly one of her favorites. And, you know, he does this kind of pale fire as this one, which is incredibly meta, in which the sort of text plays with its presence as text and as paratext. So that would be a very complex and interesting one to have as a. Mm -hmm. Can I go back real quick to Nick and finding the potential titles? Are you going to try to do that again for book seven? Should we be keeping an eye out? Yes. Obviously, one of the things that the Blair Partnership, mm -hmm. Rolling Inc., are going to want to try and do is to conceal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They have a release of the title. Now, I think fortunately at the moment, the fandom is not so loud as it was during <laughs> yeah. Harry Potter. So we may have got away with it. I don't know. I think probably in retrospect, they have understood that we discovered the title. Based on how quickly everyone guessed it on Twitter, we all knew yeah. instantly. Yes. It's Blackheart, yes! <laughs> yeah, a game of Hangman would have yeah. been wonderful. But anyway. So they're going to like cover their tracks better next time to try and mm. outwit you? So they're probably going to do it slightly differently. Now we know already, so the company that currently or most recently has been leading the efforts for that first registration within mm -hmm. the UK is a different group of companies led by a different person than it was 15 years ago. So these companies changed hands. So we so we know that they have evolved. Probably we'll be trying something different going forward. So I, I'm keeping an eye on the current group of companies, seeing if they change hands. And I'm keeping an eye on the current directors and seeing which new companies they are registering. I'm also looking a little mm -hmm. bit wider. So in the sort of out of the way jurisdictions, if there are a group of trademarks happening, with some known rolling works and a few I don't recognize, then that may give us a bit of a hint. But yes, I'm keeping my eyes open. It depends how right. devious they're going to be. <laughs> I, I know a long time ago, back in the original Harry Potter fandom, there was some great fun to be had by trademarking completely yes. bogus <laughs> Harry Potter <laughs> titles. Yeah. And she actually did Toenail of the Ichlebog, didn't she? Of the Ichlebog, yes. Yeah, which was marvellous. Yeah, it seemed like crazy. Yeah, it turned out to be actually a little bit of a, <laughs> a hint, or possibly she made it up there yeah. as a silly thing and then thought, you know what, I quite like that Ichlebog. <laughs> <laughs> but Joe herself is not beyond being devious. So on her website, she's 
it was in her mm. garbage can. So it was the, you know, if you're going to believe Eglabog, you'll, you'll believe anything. <laughs> yeah. But actually that title did come yeah. from her. So a range of titles were supplied to the publicists and the publicists set up a company to register these titles to put people off the track of what the real title was going to be. And then, and then Joe <laughs> debunked them as soon as sort of fandom mm. found them. So we know they're capable of being very viewed. So I am going to have to be yeah. cautious. Yeah, don't reveal too much of that, your methods here, just uh, in case she's listening. No. <laughs> she's not. Uh, I, and also, if they want to be really sneaky, they may try and double bluff me. So they may come up with a really fantastic idea for oh. the next title. <laughs> they kiss in this one. <laughs> 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 so uh, that would be. We would make be... a great detective. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Nick is Nick is sleuthing strike. Yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> I think I, I'd make a possible Robin. So, so, so I think Robin seems to be the one mm. with the Google mm-hmm. skills. Can I ask you both if you have any general predictions for the Ink Black Heart that you want to share that you may be excited about? I suppose I think so. I think I was the first person to suggest that because in books one and four, the person who employs Strike says it, you know, it's about is looking for a possible suicide of a family member. They think it's murder. So I think that we will find out Lader's suicide was murder in seven. I agree. That yeah. fits the one four seven, uh, which is the main story access of Harry Potter. So that's I'm expecting that to happen in seven. I'm also expecting Strike and Robin to get together in seven, just fitting the, the Harry Ginny path. But obviously Harry and Ginny kiss in six, so maybe a sort of a, a getting a bit further along the line for Strike and Robin, but not a complete together. I'm hoping for a kiss in six based on the kissing swan towels. So I think at the yeah. end of Lethal White, those swans were mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. known to us in Trouble Blood by them becoming best friends and real partners. So I was really excited about those towels. The kissing swan towels. Yeah. Yep. yeah. That's that's yeah. foreshadowing right there. Fingers <laughs> crossed. Well, and and to parallel Silkworm. So they, you know, mm. chose to be partners in, in Silkworm. So the yeah. other kind. Um, yeah other kind of partners yeah mm-hmm. I, have so I think I don't, I don't think it'll end mm. with them just happily going off into the sunset but mm. yes that they might come together in some way during and then have some kind of separation can't wait to, to find out it. <laughs> I hate predictions because I hate being wrong so we're going to be so wrong about so many things I'm, fine. I'm not going to predict but I'll, I'll say what I hope okay. we're going to see so I think we will see mm-hmm. the kiss I think we will see an interruption. Mm-hmm. So it is not going to be Happy Families on from book six. I would love to find out more about organized crime in the Clark and Wells Syndicate in the next book. I'm not convinced. So although we know that we're going to be involved in a younger demographic in the next book, I don't think it's going to be very mm-hmm. young. But I think that the way she spoke about it did sound like that. It sounded like teenagers early 20s not actual children i think roland's depiction of teenagers is Mm -hmm. incredible and i would love to Mm -hmm. see it in the next book but i don't think we are going to see that i think we're going to see young adults i I think Mm -hmm. above teenage years it explores organized crime do you think the ricci's might be back in some way because luca ricci was a very threatening figure near the end of troubled blood some people have speculated he might be back possibly i think well, now again, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> what I want to see is understanding that the, the syndicate appears to be incredibly powerful. I want to see how that mm-hmm. is organized, how strike can 
possibly interact with it and remain alive, given what we know he's done to the syndicate mm -hmm. in the past. I think we could see on the fringe other organised crimes mm -hmm. within London, uh, other criminal groups, and we may see the, the Reese's. Yeah, that's that's what I'd like to see, and mm -hmm. Norfolk or not. I think also we're going to get rugby, so we're finally going to get a conversation. Yeah. Between just so much time is spent setting that up in trouble, yeah. blood, and then it's yeah. not happening. I can't believe that's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, my philosophy with predictions is to get really wildly specific and just throw <laughs> a lot of stuff at the wall. And if I happen to get something really specific right, then, you know. That's and you can only, you know, you yeah. just mentioned those ones next time, you know. Yeah. So I got Everyone will ignore all the errors. That's how psychics do it. So <laughs> <laughs> why not? Oh, I like those predictions. A lot of them were thinking along the same lines, I think. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you guys so much. This was it's wonderful. Been, yeah, it's been lovely to hear and uh, be here and chat away with you. It's been great. And Nick and I have been in email contact for a long time now. So he first he first sort of got in touch with me on Twitter saying, I think I I think I can read Rowling's tattoo. And I think it says so it can I you know and I was like Wow, that's fantastic! She's got an alchemical tattoo and wrote three blogs on it, and I loved it. And so, and um, we've over, but we've never seen each other before, or talked before, so that's very oh, nice. Oh, this was nice then. <laughs> it's nice to confirm we're all human. Yeah, <laughs> not robots. We're yes. all real. Yeah, yeah. we we yeah. exist. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for giving up time on your Saturday. I've enjoyed the work that both of you do so much for such a long time. So it's been an honor to get to talk to you both and. I would love to do it again sometime. That would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. Yeah, yeah. we really look forward yeah. to that. Thank you for having us. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much again to our very special guests, Nick Jeffrey and Dr. Beatrice Groves for joining us today. We'll be back next week for our regularly scheduled episode covering chapters one through four of part three of The Cuckoo's Calling. If you enjoy what you've heard, don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files pod with regular updates announcing future episodes. If you'd like to send us a response to anything you've heard or have something you'd like us to discuss, you can always email us at sefilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of The Strike and Ellicott Files. <laughs>